This week on the Rotten or Righteous podcast, we ask the question. Hey, babe, slow down, slow down. It's time for a little break. You want a cliff bar and some milk? <laughs> Cheerio! Welcome to the front, soldier. Yep, we're continuing with all military, except this year we're with the British, which means we don't yell, no matter what happens. I could get shot and stabbed, and I'd be like, oh bother, like Winnie the Pooh. You're listening to Rotten or Righteous, the podcast equivalent to the word moist. With me today is Master Sergeant Corporal Luke Taylor. Hello! Peasants of the earth, we are the British. We like to colonize you all and steal your natural resources. In- Indubitably. And me, well, I'm Lance Corporal Bass Zach Guyler. And in case you didn't know, today we're going back to 1917, which is a giant hint to the movie we're watching. 19. 1917's the movie. I'm done talking like that. It's dumb. Uh, before we dive into the movie, I do want to share with Luke uh, that my son, my, my sweet, beautiful, almost four-year-old son, uh, seems to be actively trying to uh, to get child services called on me. <laughs> Does this surprise you? Was it not expected? I mean, I mean, kind of, you know, it started a few weeks ago when we were leaving Walmart. And I was pushing him in the cart, and he just started to to say loudly for whoever wanted to listen, uh, let me go. (laughs) Were uh, were you, like, dragging him through Walmart? No, he was in the cart just shouting, let me go. (laughs) Uh, You weren't confining him in there? No, this is let me go, let me go. And like this little old lady in the parking lot sees him because he's saying this loudly, sees him saying, let me go, let me go. And then she starts walking towards my truck and I'm like, okay, things are about to go down. I'm about to get arrested for taking my own son (laughs) into public. Do you feel like you're a person that looks like they might be profiled as a, um, a child abductor? I mean, no, I, I don't think that. I mean, I'm 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 chubby, but I don't think I have any of those characteristic. Uh, I don't know. When I think of a child molester, I don't think of a chubby guy. What do you think of? For some reason, like like John Waters, like just a skinny, creepy That's true. dude. They're like it's all in the tall, eyes. The eyes have to be like big and buggy. With those like seventies glasses. Tall, right, lanky, with a with a tiny mustache. That's true. All the child abductors that I know look strikingly similar to that. Right. And so, uh, yeah, so this old lady's coming towards the car as Joseph's, let me go, let me go. <laughs> I think what uh, I think what stopped her was uh, 
she saw the car seat in the back of my my truck, you know, and and I think that if I was kidnapping a kid, I probably wouldn't have a car seat. I don't think you know that that safety is paramount in that uh, in that particular juncture. You're not going to take the time to strap a kid in. You just want to get in the the truck and go. Well, now that you've informed all the child abductors that a car seat is the secret to looking official, they're all going to go out and buy one. Or you know. Just he was my son. I'm allowed to take him wherever I want to take him. Isn't it sad that we live in a world where it's like everyone's like suspicious all the time of everything? Well, to be fair, I've never been profiled like that before. My son started shouting, "Let me go!" I do think I do like that we live in a world that if a child is screaming, "Let me go!" that someone is at least concerned. True. Bless that old lady's heart. I mean, it could have been. Yeah, bless her heart. Then today, I'm driving him over to his grandparents, and then all of a sudden he just is like, he just looks at me and goes, Dad, don't hit me. <laughs> and I said, I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is he watching on YouTube? He apparently he's watching some freaking Dateline or some I, crap on YouTube. I, I don't know, but I will say this. I would be willing to go under oath and swear to the fact that I have never even spanked my child, let alone hit him. <laughs> what was that movie we were watching where, where the guy pulls the girl off the horse and spanks her? It was uh, uh, Matt Damon and... Oh yeah, True Grit. Yeah, after your response to my laughing at that, I believe you. <laughs> like, I, I'm... I'm, I'm anti <laughs> anti spanking for my kid. So yeah, and so he and he just started like to be really specific with it even more than hey dad don't hit me because the next thing he started to say was hey dad don't hit my butt. <laughs> Maybe Kelsey's feeding him these lines. I have no idea, but I'm just waiting for the day that CPS just comes and knocks on my door. Saying, hey, we've had a, a reports of child abuse. I'm like, no, my son's just an idiot. He's a four-year-old idiot, but I love him. <laughs> um, the, okay, yeah, so we watched 1917 this week, which I've come to realize is really just the story of one man going through hell in order to take a nap. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe there was more to it than that. Maybe he had a greater purpose than napping. But if there was, I couldn't see it. I mean, it starts with a nap. It ends with a nap. It starts with a nap. The nap is interrupted and a lot of stuff happens. And then he goes back to his nap. You know, I didn't catch the napping. I didn't catch the beginning and the ending on the first to watch. I don't know why. This is like. The first movie that I've seen that deals with World War One, the Great War, the incredibly wrongly named The War to End All Wars. <laughs> and I don't know why that is. And I also don't know what World War One was about. I know that George Washington killed Archduke of Wellington and the Allies fought with the Poles over an axis. 
But sadly, I'd have to say I don't know either. It was something about some some Duke guy. See, his name was like Francis Ferdinand. First of all, if you're going to be a Duke, that's probably the best name you could come up with. That is a pretty good one. Austria. Why does anyone care about Austria? I don't know. So yeah, uh, but luckily you don't need to know much about World War One in order to understand what's happening in 1917. Because really all we care about in this movie is a sleepy guy named uh, Schofield and a hungry guy named Blake. That's all we really know about these two. On the 6th of April, 1917, aerial reconnaissance has observed that the German army, which has pulled back from a sector of the Western Front in northern France, is not retreating as they thought, but has made a strategic withdrawal to the new Hindenburg Line, where they are waiting to overwhelm the British with artillery. But the guys on the front don't know that. They think that the, the Germans are just turning tail and running. And so we got uh, old Colonel McKenzie up there going, hey, we're going we're gonna to just take the war to these German guys, these Huns. Don't know why they're called that, but we're going to take it to the German guys. And we're going to overwhelm them. We're going to end this war tomorrow. Uh, but that's a big problem as, uh, uh, as General Aaron Moore comes to tell us because, huh, there's a whole bunch of Germans where the British are about to be attacking, and they're just basically walking in to a slaughterhouse. This movie wouldn't be a proper movie about Brits if that guy wasn't in it. That guy's in everything. Everything British, that guy. Dude, there's so many British cameos in here. There's a British cameo uh, palooza. All right. It's 1917. It's the story of a sleepy guy named Schofield and a hungry boy named Blake. They're sent on a mission to warn the Devons, dumb name for uh, a group of soldiers. Who, who are you fighting with? The Devons. Oh, I'm sorry. Were the lances already filled? What are you going to do? Fight with the Keiths? It sounds very British, though. You know, the Devons. It does. I feel like Devons is a biscuit they eat with their tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to warn the Devons at the front who are about to attack what they think is the retreating German forces to put an end to the war. But really, the Germans want the Devons to think that, and they're retreating just to fortify themselves so that when the Devons actually attack, it's just going to be a massacre that's going to get 1,600 people killed. And so we have Schofield and Blake sent on a mission to walk across no man's land, about nine miles is all they have to go, but it is nine miles of the toughest terrain ever. Nine miles to get there before the attack happens in the morning and save the lives of 1,600 men by telling Colonel McKenzie, to, who is in charge of the Devons, to cool his jets a little bit, like, calm down, bro. And just to up the ante, Blake's older brother is underneath Colonel McKenzie. So Blake is doubly invested. He's like, okay, 1,600 people, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Oh, wait, my brother's there? Let's go. And so he and Schofield hit the road. Jack and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. 
Well, one of them wouldn't. Yeah. Spoilers. Can I ask a question here? Um, so they have no form of communication whatsoever with this group. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, they say that as the Germans were retreating, they cut the telephone lines. Oh, okay. So why not send a plane or a car? Or well, I don't know a- if you noticed that the one car in this movie couldn't move because the Germans also cut trees down in front of the roads and they were riding around on bikes bicycle tires basically and so they couldn't do any off-roading so why not send the, the a plane like if you worthless if you've the got planes six... were made out of cardboard they yeah were made but out of cardboard they were flying around on their trip <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay I know. so like uh, you're obviously going to take some risks if you're 1600 men are at risk and like why not send a plane and drop a package and drop your message? Like you can't tell me they didn't have any established way of communicating like that. Back uh, in I'm that sorry, day. but if you listen- like, we're going to send two random guys, we're not going to know if they ever make it <laughs> and have no way to confirm. We could send a plane <laughs> to drop a message and it would be there like nine miles. It would be there in like what? Actually, they couldn't drop a plane because. The German at the Hindenburg line, the German had built and had an incredible arsenal of artillery. They could have shot any plane out of the sky that got near that front line. But they're just as likely to get for their two dudes to get killed as we. Oh, I'm sorry, Luke. Uh, Did you not want this movie to happen? (laughs) I mean, it's just like. Why? Why? Because just two random privates. Two random privates here, like you know, that's you not guys, true. It's all up to you, Blake. They're not privates. Schofield they're... is a lance corporal, and <sighs> Blake is also a lance corporal. They're lance corporals, man. Still, <laughs> and not only that, but keep in mind that Schofield is a war hero. He's a veteran of a French town. That I could try to pronounce. S O M M E. Some. So me. Some me. Maybe it's just some. Some French town. So this man has the experience. Blake has the gumption. They're about ready to head off on a wacky World War One road trip. Now, one of the selling points of this movie is the fact that there is only one discernible cut in the entire movie. So, literally, from the moment they're given this job where Blake and Schofield are just sleeping underneath the tree, it does not cut. The camera follows them as they walk down to the trench, as they walk to the general and get their orders, and as they're now moving. No cuts. Which is incredible. Some of the cinematography in this movie blows my mind like how do you how do you get a cameraman inside a truck driving down the road and then stop and then get out of the truck to watch the guy push and then get back in the truck without the camera ever jiggling without it moving or have a camera walking over a trench and then glide across a river i don't understand how they did this stuff it is amazing i think there are cuts No, there are cuts, but 
like like when they were walking into the tent, there was probably a cut because it was yeah. able to hide that in the black. There are a couple. I'm not of saying that it wasn't cut, but there are still 15, 20 minute scenes without a chance to black out that it does not cut from these guys. Yeah, it's pretty cool. In, I'm obviously there are edits, but there it's designed in a way that you. It looks you like one leave. continuous shot. It's, it's in real time with these guys. And so, I, I mean, the reason why this is probably my favorite war movie is because no other war movie have, has put me or has immersed me so much into the story because I'm walking with these guys. There's no cuts. I see everything, you know? Like, when they feel claustrophobic, I feel claustrophobic. When they're anxious, I feel anxious. When they're scared, I feel scared. When they're stabbed to death, I'm stabbed to death. Really? Mm-hmm. I, I, stab, I was stabbed to death. I'm dead. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they get this order to go to the front in order to uh, tell McKenzie to back off, or two battalions are going to be wiped out. So they have nine miles to go and a short time to get there, but they're going to do what they say can't be done. Now, Schofield wants to wait until it's dark, because he's smart. But Blake is anxious to get to his older brother. I understand that, but uh, Blake seems to be the one in charge here, at least for a little while. He is stripped of his command, permanently. But right now, uh, so they get to the front or what used to be the front until the Germans moved out. And then they, they cross no man's land, which is really gross because it's just nothing but dead bodies and craters from artillery. It is disgusting. Like trench warfare had to have been just unbelievably terrible. Well, it's like you were fighting, you were fighting your enemies, but then you were just fighting like the conditions, like everyone was getting gangrene because all the trenches were muddy and it was just nasty. As they're walking through No Man's Land, we have our first injury where Schofield cuts his hand on a piece of barbed wire. And you think, okay, barbed wire, that's fine. He can just wrap that up, get a little Neosporin <laughs> on there. He's going to be fine. But then they get down into a crater to hide from some planes that are flying overhead. And Schofield just puts his hand right into a German. I mean, I don't think I could describe that any better than, <laughs> than what I just said. Chest cavity and intestines of a blown open German. All I know is, I don't know what that corpse had for dinner, but let's just say that everything that hits his stomach is just going right through him. <laughs> that, was, that was the grossest part of the... Like if I put my hand, <laughs> I, I put my hand into a dead body. Like I think I could live with it. But if it was cut open and I just had to sit there and worry about it right. getting infected off of a dead a dead person, that would be that'd be rough. And it uh, was it was it was so gross. It was the most disgusting thing in the entire world. I felt I could. <laughs> the first time I saw this movie, I remember I could not focus on anything <laughs> but that. <laughs> For the rest of the movie, I'm like, his hand's gonna be infected. He's gonna lose that hand. There is no way that he's going to walk out of this without getting septic shock or or <laughs> something yeah. terrible is happening in that kid's hand. Because later on, he only like rinses it out with some water and just puts a little Band-Aid on it. Like, we're good to go. 
so this this whole scene is really tense because they say the Germans are gone, but you don't really know, right? You can't see them, and you're in no man's land. Corpses of, of people and soldiers and animals are all around. They have their guns out just in case, and you're just waiting for that first bullet to come, and the, the music is swelling, and everything's getting really intense, and then they get up to the German bunker, and it's empty. Nothing's there. I will say that the German's bunker was was much nicer than the British bunker. Yeah, it was. I mean, they had cement, hardwood floors. There was a butler there handing out treats. They were uh, they were in Germany, weren't they? No, they, they were had... in France. Oh. Yeah, they get to this abandoned German trench, and they find the way to get through it. just so happens to be this dark, scary tunnel. And they get down into the German into the German bunkhouse, uh, and, and Blake, true to his character, is hungry. He's like, hey, there's some hanging bags of just strangeness hanging up here. Why don't you eat some of that? But Schofield's like, dude, I just put my bloody hand through a corpse, and that's disgusting. What you just said was disgusting me. I've, I've, I'm going to be patient zero for the zombie apocalypse, but you just grossed me out because you want to eat some ba- random bag meat that you found. <laughs> bag meat. Here, eat this canned dog instead. The Germans were just they... munching on canned dog. I mean, why not? Because would you dog... eat a, Would you eat a dog if, like, you were in China? Would you eat dog meat? I truly don't think. Part of me says yes because I've never been asked to eat something in a culinary sense. I went to culinary school, so part of me says, you know, I'll try anything once. I've eaten weird things before, like. Kangaroo. I've had kangaroo before. And uh how did you acquire a kangaroo? The zoo? You just took it home and did him up no, with some I, salt and pepper. No, of course not. I cut off his leg and then just brought the leg home. <laughs> just is that why that is that one legged kangaroo at the zoo now? Yep. Just no, somebody you like kangaroo. You can order kangaroo online. It's not illegal. Really? You can I guess you, you probably can get it like Jungle Gyms down in Cincinnati. I guess I have seen like kangaroo jerky before, so I wouldn't try it. It makes you a little bit jumpy. Ho ho ho. Yeah, I think the worst thing about the um putting his hand through that body was the sound design on that because <laughs> it was so squished. It was real gross. It was, it was so moist. <laughs> that the the sound design deserves an, an Oscar and to never be allowed to work on a movie again because the only thing I can think of was they really did get a dead body in that Foley room and put a hand through it because that's the only <laughs> thing I can think of that'd make that sound. It's so interesting when you watch like videos on YouTube of how they do the sounds for movies and like the lengths that they go to to make the sounds sound authentic. I know I would love that'd be a fun job though. Yeah, so they're in this German trench talking about whether or not they wanted to eat dog or bag meat and uh. Schofield notices that there's a tripwire in front of them. So if they, you know, something bad's going to happen if they trip this wire. But then this rat, this Nazi rat, just falls off the ceiling and is like, oh, don't you worry, you two limey guys. Here I go. <laughs> and he, and he's pulling a bag of, uh, uh, or uh, he's pulling a, some meat, some bag meat with his mouth. He, he, he got his, he got, he gnawed a, a bag of meat down and it fell with him. 
and he's dragging that bag of meat right into the tripwire. He's he he's like trying to be ratatouille. He's gonna go and try to make something nice for 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 dinner, but no, because he got blown up. And by the way, this rat's like the size of a chihuahua. This is the biggest rat I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, they did a great job with this scene with the rat falling on the ground and how quickly it happened and like the shock that you have while you sit there and watch this rat move towards yeah, the trip. It scared the living <laughs> crap out of me the first time I watched it. Like you just want to reach towards the screen and grab that stupid thing. <clears throat> yeah, but then the rat goes slowly towards the tripwire, but they're too far away to do anything about it and then kaboom. And you're like, well, this is a short movie. <laughs> but uh Blake is is blown back. But he's good. But Schofield gets buried underneath a bunch of rubble and stuff. You can hear his muffled cries underneath that rubble. And it's terrifying. Because you just hear him go, like, real quietly. And it just scares me to death. Because my biggest fear is being buried alive. And here we have this guy that is buried alive. He's been buried alive. And now, you know, we have to deal with that. <laughs> I just didn't you like to it. deal with that. Yeah, I mean, but but luckily Blake pulls his buddy up out of of that rubble, which I'm glad that they had Blake save Schofield's life here because up to this point, Blake has pretty much been useless. He hadn't done anything. I mean, you have Schofield pulling back the barbed wire so Blake can get through, but he doesn't return the favor, which is why Schofield cut his hand open in the first place. And then you have him not sitting down next to the corpse, so then poor Schofield has to go, you know, <laughs> elbow deep into a dead guy. He's he's just been <laughs> he's just been kind of useless this entire this entire movie. But he kind of redeems himself here because he's the one that pulls Schofield out of the rubble and they're able to get out of the, the trench. And uh, basically, no harm, no foul. So they get out of the trench. They notice that the Germans have destroyed all their artillery, making it just as difficult as possible for the British to follow them. It really does look like they were retreating. And that was the point of all this. They want to form this trap. But as they're walking, Blake decides that this is going to be a real good time to, to tell a story about a rat seeing as they have only had good experiences with rats so far in this movie today. Mm -hmm. And he tells of a, a, a story of about or, or of a British soldier named Wilco. Well, you know his girl's a hairdresser, right? And he was moaning about the lack of bathing facilities when he wrote to her. Remember those rancid jakes, Harris? Yeah. Anyway, she sends him over this hair oil. <laughs> Smells sweet. Like golden syrup. Wilco loves the smell, but he doesn't want to cast it around in his pack. So he slathers it all over his barnet and goes to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and a rat is sitting on his shoulder, licking the oil off his head. <laughs> Wilco panics and he jumps up, <laughs> and when he does, the rat bites clean through his and runs off with it. No. <laughs> he made a hell of a fuss, yelling, screaming. The best of it was, he put so much bloody oil on himself that he couldn't wash it off. <laughs> he was like a magnet. The rats left us alone, but they couldn't get enough of him. I don't know if that's true. I feel like there's a lot here for a rat <laughs> to have to like get through in order to like turn me into a Picasso. 
A Van Gogh. No, Van Van Gogh, yeah. They're the um, same guy if you don't think about it. I've seen some big rats, not the biggest rats, but how big would a rat have to be to bite your ear off in one chop? <laughs> I don't know. That's a funny story. But as they're walking to, uh, Schofield tells Blake, hey, man, guess what? Looks like you're going to get a medal. He's like, really? You think so? He's like, yeah, you saved my life. I'll probably give you a medal for that. And he's like, awesome. Something to send home to the folks. Blake asked Schofield, hey, didn't you get a medal for what you did up in Somme, 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 whatever that was called? He's like, yeah, but I traded it to a French dude for a bottle of wine. And he's like, why? Why'd you do that? And he's like, it's just a piece of tin. And then he's like, if I got a medal, I'd take it back home. Why didn't you just take it home? Look, it's just a bit of bloody tin. It doesn't make you special. It doesn't make any difference to anyone. Yes, it does. And it's not just a bit of tin. It's got a ribbon on it. <laughs> it was funny. It made me laugh. But apparently something bad happened to him up there. He's, he's a little disenfranchised with war. And I don't know about you, Luke, but I hate it whenever I go to war with somebody who just doesn't want to be there. Yeah, some war downer doesn't uh, take advantage of the opportunity to win some tin mm. and ribbon. Yeah. Next, they walk up to a farmhouse that's abandoned. While Blake is looking around inside, Schofield goes out to the barn and sees a bucket of milk, which uh, he just dips his hand in and tries for the best. I'm going to be honest with you, Luke. I After he found out the milk wasn't spoiled, this almost made me throw up. And still almost makes me throw up every time I watch this. Because then he dips both his hands into that milk bucket and uses his hands to drink this milk. I didn't even think about that. We know where that hand's been, Schofield. What are you doing? You know, he's over it at this point. He's just like, if it's if it's already, uh, if the dead guy's organs are already infecting my hand, then little milk drink ain't gonna hurt. Can I also say that he fills his canteen with milk? which also kind of disgusts me. The last thing I want when I'm on a like a hot day and I do a lot of strenuous activity is a big, big old gulp of warm milk. <laughs> well, so I feel like I grew up kind of weird in the sense that... Yeah, when I, we, feel, I feel that way too. <laughs> when we... When we um, like in the summer, we used to drink milk like all the time. Like we didn't drink water. We drink milk. And so like hot summer day, we'd come inside. Granted, it was cold, but we would just like slam a glass of milk. And so this wasn't really uh, that wasn't really that weird to me. And plus, like, you know, if you're out and there's no food because they haven't been eating, apparently, because they've been rationed that warm. You'd probably be all about that warm milk. First of all, I can t promise you that I would not be all about that warm milk because I am severely lactose intolerant. Like, well, I tried to eat a bowl of, of uh, Captain Crunch earlier this week, and I poured just the smallest amount of milk on top of it, and I regretted that decision for, like, the next 12 hours. <laughs> so, no. I'm not, I'm, if I'm in war, if I don't have time to stop every 15 minutes, I'm, I'm not digging into that warm unprocessed, just thick, chunky, fresh cow juice. That's where all the nutrients are in that unpasteurized good stuff. The French know. That's I, just why I mean, how long is that milk going to be good for in your canteen? 
I mean, I can't give Joseph a, a glass of milk at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then by 5 o'clock at night, it stinks. So, I mean, they're walking overnight to try to get to this place, and then you don't have, like, some Dawn dish soap in your pack. You're not going to be able to scrub it out. You just ruined your canteen. Well, I don't know if it's different if it's pasteurized, but I feel like also, like, we think we we think that things go bad really quick, but, like, I've eaten things that are, like, technically... Poisonous. People would would say, oh, that's gone bad, right? And I've never gotten sick from it. I feel like we just have like a lower tolerance for what's good and what's bad, but it's edible still. Luke, curdled milk is not edible. It is, though. I mean, think think of how many generations probably drank old warm milk, like tons, right? Yeah. Also, think of how many generations it took before the average death age wasn't 43. <laughs> I hate that argument from health people. We're just eating like our ancestors. Your ancestors lived to be 12. <laughs> Not all of that was food related. No, but I mean, like, st- you know, we have like expiration dates on things, but you can still eat food after expiration dates. Megan's always arguing expiration to- date. Megan's always telling me not to leave meat outside of the fridge for like more than a day. And I leave it out for like three days. What the heck is wrong with you? And then I eat it. You're going to die. (laughs) You you probably have a tapeworm right now. I doubt it. No, I don't. You're gross. I am the science experiment that proves that I think you could drink day old milk. This whole story has made me incredibly sad. The U- According to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, refriger- refrigerated foods, including milk, should never be left out of the fridge for longer than two hours. And that's raw milk, I looked up. Who has raw milk? Uh, according to Quora, it'll stay good from 10 to 12. That's what unpasteurized milk straight from the teat is called, raw milk. Yeah, but who has raw, who has raw milk? I mean, like, normal citizens don't have it. Right, but this is raw milk we're talking about in a canteen. Raw milk will stay good for 10 to 12 hours. But will you get sick if you drink it? That's really the question. No, you're not going to get sick. I'm not saying that it was gross because he's going to get sick. I thought it was gross because he was putting milk in a canteen. I don't care if it's 2% or raw milk. You don't put it in a canteen and take it on a hike. But what if you're... You're like, hey, babe, slow down, slow down. It's time for a little break. You want a cliff Bar and some milk? <laughs> I think if you were running, running for your life... You're running for your life without food and water because the military didn't give you any. There was a water spigot four feet away from him. No, it didn't work, remember? No, it did work because he filled his helmet up with it. Which I also... But don't... Let's let's, let's, let's <laughs> move on from the milk because that's another gross thing we need to talk about. All right. So, after he gets the milk, they notice that there's a British plane and a German plane in a dogfight. And the German plane goes down. Well... It goes down at a very, uh, uh, a very bad place because it just flies straight at them. And Scott brought up a good point. He goes, hey, why didn't they run to the side when the plane was coming at them? And I said, that's a good question, Scott. Because this plane was coming straight at them, and their thought was, hey, let's run the same direction of the plane. Well, this is the classic movie well, of course it is. Maybe there's some kind of like psychological thing that when you're in death-defying situations, you run parallel to what is about to destroy you. Because every movie has it, so it has there has to be some truth to it. Right. Right. I don't know. The plane crashes into the barn, 
<laughs> and then Blake immediately runs over to help the German pilot out of the flaming wreckage. Now, Schofield, again, smart guy, wants to, to, to just put the pilot out of his misery. But Blake goes, no, let's not do that. You, go get him some water. Schofield's like, okay, I'll go get this guy some water. He runs off to get water, and how is he going to transport this water? Well, he can't use his canteen because that's filled with milk. He's just going to take his dirty, nasty hat off his head, his helmet, and fill that up with water. I don't care if this dude is your enemy. That's gross. <laughs> I hope we get in a war. Actually, no. I hope you and I get sent on a mission, and I'm going to see what you're willing to do if you, if we, if all first these all, terrible situations befall us. First of all, it better be a long mission, because for like the first two weeks, I'm going to be useless until I get into some sh- kind of shape. <laughs> that first day, I will take three steps and just be like, I need a break. You got the milk? Thanks, man. That's because you're, yeah, because you're not drinking that good, unpasteurized, spoiled warm milk. When you do, though, it'll transform you. Why he's filling his helmet up with water that he's going to give to someone to drink. I don't care. It's gross. Pour your milk out, dude, and give him some water in a cup like a human being. It's gross. But anyways, while he's doing this, Schofield hears uh, Blake screaming behind him and turns around to see the German pilot stabbing Blake right in the gut. Schofield's not messing around. Pop, pop. Two shots. German dude, dead. But then Blake takes off his pack and realizes he, 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 he got stabbed pretty good. Mortally wounded. I cannot remember watching a death scene in a movie that is more realistic and more heartbreaking than this one. Because first of all, it comes at you completely by surprise because this whole movie has been setting up, you know, Blake traveling to be reunited with his brother. He's taken the lead. He's been kind of like the, the, the spokesman for this group. And just in an instant, he's not, he's dying. And a few things that happen that you just don't see in movies like this is like Schofield's trying to, to get Blake to keep moving to try to find there's an army post nearby that they're going to try to get to and, and so they can patch him up. And as they're moving, Blake screams because of the pain in his gut. He can't walk and he's screaming to be put down like, please just stop moving me. And Schofield's fighting him and, and eventually Schofield gives up and realizes that even if he could move Blake himself, you know, they weren't going to make it. And then he just slowly bleeds out. And it's terrible. And the thing that really, that really got me, though, is that Blake's sitting there, and he asks Schofield, he goes, I've been hit. What was it? He was stabbed. Am I dying? Yes. Yes, I think you are. That doesn't happen in movies. Yeah, that line kind of uh, hit me different. I thought that was an interesting, just kind of that conversation, like, of him recognizing that he was about to die and he had those few moments to... Right. Tell Schofield, you know, his last wishes. 
Well, and that's kind of what I was thinking about it too, because like on one hand, you know, you always see the war movie where the guy's getting shot and is dying. He's like, no, no, you're going to make it. You're going home, you know, trying to give these people mm-hmm. hope. But, but because Schofield told Blake the truth that he was dying, Blake was able to make sure that the mission could continue after he was gone because he still wanted to save his brother. I think the almost like the commonness, that's kind of a terrible way to say it, but like the the commonness of his death. Like there's nothing spectacular necessarily about it. It's not over glamorized or he doesn't go out in a blaze of al- glory. Yeah, and it's also very like unexpected. And it's like a lot of people probably died like that, just in and, random places in, you know, plus foreign he, lands. He died because he was doing a good thing, which also hits you differently. Yeah. You know, it's one thing in a war movie, and again, I don't I don't have anything but respect for soldiers that fought in wars. But it's one thing in, in a war movie to see a soldier being gunned down as he is shooting the enemy, right? I think in a weird way that's it doesn't affect you as much because that's supposed to happen. But to see a soldier do something that, well, they're not supposed to, that is save the enemy and then get killed for it, it does hit you differently. Uh, Blake was able to make sure that, that Schofield knew where he was going. He was able to... Blake was able to say goodbye to his parents because Schofield was able to take the picture that he carried with him of them out of his pocket. And um, Schofield took Blake's rings that he wore and his dog tag. And then a garrison just so happened to be coming by and investigating the plane crash that just happened. Which, again, I liked because the first couple times I watched this movie... I always thought that this was a weaker scene because it was just so circumstantial. Like, soldiers just so happened to show up as soon as Blake yeah. died. But I missed that line where uh, the soldier was like, hey, we saw the smoke. Now, that makes sense to me. They had, you know, if they were nearby, they saw the smoke, of course they're going to go and investigate. It's not as circumstantial as I thought it was the first time. But this garrison are heading towards the new front line. To, to fight the Germans. And uh, it just so happens that they're passing by the Akus, uh, the city that Schofield needs to get to in order to get over to the Devons. And so they give him a ride. He does get to the Akus, but the bridge is out. There's another bridge that could get him into the city, but it was six miles down the road. And he's like, yeah, I don't have time for that nonsense. I'm just going to hardcore parkour over this bridge. And he doesn't really hardcore parkour. He awkwardly shuffles across it. And then a sniper, a German sniper, one of the last stragglers from the retreat, starts taking pot shots at him. And luckily, this is the worst sniper in German history. (laughs) Some stormtrooper level sniper right here. Because he is maybe 75 yards away from the downed bridge and misses every single shot. Uh, And it's not like the bridge was, you know... Like he was standing beside or behind a, a solid piece of steel. This bridge had like lattice work that had a foot gap in between each one of the crisscrossing beams. There was no reason why this sniper should should have missed 
as many times as he did. And then to make matters worse, Schofield does make it across the bridge. And then, without a scope on his rifle, just stands up and pops the guy through the window. Like, second shot. That was a killer shot. I mean... 75 yards. He, like, had his head sticking up over the window. Yeah, that was nice. And so, Schofield goes into the sniper's perch to to see if the soldier died to make sure the threat was gone. And, well, the German sniper's not quite dead yet. And he shoots Schofield right in the dome. And Schofield falls down, blackout, first obvious cut of the movie. From the beginning of this review that we're talking about to right here, there is no obvious stop point. It is just constant. But luckily... I wonder why... That he chose to do that instead of just like time it up so that he could go continuous. Or why not just change that scene? Well, think about it. They they only had nine miles to go, right? They left what? You'd say mid-afternoon, maybe two, three o'clock. They had to Mm -hmm. get there by what time was the... I don't know what time they were planning on attacking, but the next morning. It doesn't take that long to walk nine miles. They're making pretty good time. And in order to make sure that they didn't get there too soon, like if he got there late afternoon and handed the orders like, hey, here, no more attacking, there'd be a lot <laughs> less drama uh, <laughs> that that could have happened. They needed a time lapse, and you can't have a time lapse <laughs> in a movie that's happening in real time. So by knocking Schofield out, and yes, Schofield did get shot in the head, but his helmet was apparently made out of vibranium. So uh, it just kind of ricocheted off. And he was fine. Then, when he wakes up, it is nighttime in Akus. And it is one of the coolest scenes I've seen in a movie, period. Because you have these straggling Germans getting out of the city at night. And they're moving by the light of flares. You see these flares go up and cast shadows and nothing's really constant. And it just it, it's really cool. I really like this whole scene. Of, of him going through this city and he is being shot at by the Germans who see him. So he's trying to stick to the shadows and only moving when the flares go out. It's just really good. Uh, interesting bit of trivia, the way that they achieved this scene. And um, in just a few m- minutes, Schofield makes it through to the heart of the city and sees that the Germans set the entire town on fire. And the way they achieved these scenes while filming is by, uh, they built the largest wall of LED lights ever used in a movie in order to film this thing. The budget for this movie had to be insane. No, I mean, I mean, it wasn't cheap. It was only $94 million or $95 million. I mean, only. But, I mean, it wasn't huge. That's not too bad, I mean, for a blockbuster. But think about it. They only had, like, I mean, they had a bunch of extras, but they only had, like, six actors. <laughs> Yeah, like, that's true. Like, the majority of this movie had to have just gone into special effects because you couldn't do this CGI. They had to actually build these trenches and basically make, like, a giant obstacle course to walk, that these two actors could walk through so that they didn't cut. Okay, where are we at? We're in a coos. The city's on fire. As Schofield is looking at the burning city, he notices a lone gunman who... Then notices Schofield and chases after him. And Schofield runs away real fast. And then he slips into an abandoned building to get away. But it's not abandoned. 
There's a French lady and a baby in there. Man, don't you hate it when you walk into a abandoned building and it just so happens to be the home of a French lady and a baby? Uh, I not had, if she has any baguettes. If I had a nickel for every time this has happened to me. Now, Schofield is able to relax for five seconds as this French woman dresses his wounds. And uh, before he leaves, he gives the woman his remaining rations. But the woman's like, well, but this baby can't eat this food. And Schofield's like, don't worry. Here's some milk. Dumb. That's the dumbest part of this movie. That's the only pro- problem I have with this movie. It's dumb. The only reason why <laughs> you just, he filled that... You're just mad. You're just mad that the spoiled milk got used for a good purpose and that it wasn't in vain for him to drink his milk. No, your, your biggest canteen. problem with this movie at the beginning was that they sent two guys across no man's land to, to deliver a message. Okay? Yeah, it doesn't my, make sense. Okay, my biggest problem is they had a soldier fill up a canteen with milk. Just so we could hand it to a baby that he did not know existed when he filled the canteen up with milk. No, he was going to drink the milk if the baby wasn't there, but he was sacrificial, so he gave his baby his milk. That's dumb. And that's not even going to help the baby. Not really. Baby needs breast milk. Why? It needs the nutrients of its mother. Or it's better than nothing. Yeah, Are you advocating true. for the baby to starve? Listen. That's, that's what you're advocating for. You know. After after saying a nice nursery rhyme to the baby, he goes out back into the Yakuza, even though the woman warns him that it's dawn and the Germans are going to be able to see him. But he's like, I'm not worried about that. I'm going to take care of this. See you later, toots. And he gets back out there. He's got crap to do. And he's again just walking through the, the, the shadows of the city. And then he cuts into a building where there's just some nerdy looking German dude just standing right there. And so... Schofield tackles the guy back against the pillar and puts his mouth over or his hand over his mouth and it's like But when he moves his hand, the German's like nine So Schofield of course has to strangle him. It's the most brutal like it it took like five minutes. We just watched him slowly strangle a dude for five minutes. And it didn't even help, because as he's strangling this guy, well, another drunk German, of course, playing off that stereotype, all Germans are drunks, uh, uh, comes stumbling in there and sees Schofield strangling his little Gestapo. And so everybody, every, every last German in that town knows that there's a lanky British dude running around choking people out. And so... He's just like, all right, forget the shadows. I'm Bolton. Again, again, the Germans lost both World War I and World War II because nobody taught them how to aim. Because every single bullet misses Schofield. I think with this scene and the time that, uh, what's his name? Uh, Butterfield. What's the other guy who died? The soldier who came out with him. Blake. When he dies... One thing that's unique about this movie is like you feel bad about like it leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth. Like with this scene with the strangling, it's like this is just horrible. Like I don't even enjoy watching this. It's, and then when Blake dies, you feel the same way. It's like here they are. Like he doesn't want to kill this dude. And I feel like all of us would be in that same situation where it's like we don't necessarily harbor any hatred for other people. And when you have to no. look somebody in your in the eye who's like no. your same age, wouldn't have. A and then it's like. <laughs> Do I do I kill this guy just because yep. he was wearing the the wrong uniform? You do. It's like you, you just feel. Him. It's like he tries to save him, 
See, I would have pulled like he, a pencil or something out of my pocket, stuck it in his ear, grabbed a brick, just shoved it in there and moved on. You probably would, but you probably wouldn't even have given your spoiled milk to the baby. All right, so Schofield's out in the open. Everybody knows he's there. He's running away. There you have the stormtroopers aim, and he manages to get away by jumping off a bridge into a river that's just really, really roaring, and he escapes. Thankfully, uh, he's able to keep his head above water and eventually able to swim by ditching his backpack and his heavy gear. And he just kind of allows, he just turns into a lazy river ride for a little while, this movie. He just grabs on a log and just rides it down the river like a sloth. It was very relaxing. Until. Until he hit a tree that made a natural dam that just had whole bunches of dead bodies in it. And man, poor guy. I imagine he stuck his, his cut hand in like six more corpses by the time he got out of that river. It was clean. The river washed it out. Magical right. river. And when he gets on shore, Schofield is heartbroken because the sun's coming up. He feels that he's too late. He doesn't know where he's at. And in his mind, he failed his mission and then failed Blake. So he cries. And again, you feel for this guy because you do want him to succeed. You know, you're, you're definitely Team Schofield. Oh, is that how we're supposed to feel? After he's done crying for a bit. He starts hearing some singing in the woods. And sure enough, there's a whole bunch of British soldiers there just having a sing-along of Poor Wayfaring Stranger. That's a great song. That is my favorite hymn. I was leading singing. I don't know if I like it because it's just a great song or just because it's in a minor key and there's not very many hymns in a minor key. I think I like it because it's... My least favorite hymn is Blue Skies and Rainbows. Because you don't like happy songs? No, I I think it's, like, disgustingly happy. I'm a... (laughs) I'm a realist, all right? I, I I have never once walked outside and was like, oh, look, blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven. That's not how rainbows work. That's you how it works in Guam. You have to you come to Guam. You can't have There's blue skies, rainbows, and sunbeams. Yeah, you can. It just happens right after the rain. Or so what I can Guam, see, because the Lord is living in me. I know that <laughs> Jesus is well. And alive today. Yeah, he makes a home in my heart. Nothing bad's gonna happen to me. Never more can I see. Cause the Lord is living in me. Life's great. It's not what life is like. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> you know what some life's like? Bury me in some churchyard. I'm just going over Jordan. <laughs> I'm just a poor... Mm, that's my stuff. Wayfaring stranger, I travel through this world alone. There needs to be more depressing songs, is what I'm saying. There are plenty of depressing songs. Let's finish this thing. Where were we? Uh, we're singing "Poor Wayfaring Stranger." Oh yeah. And uh, so, 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 Schofield's just chilling out, listening to "Poor Wayfaring Stranger," best hymn ever, and. Uh, he soon finds out that the, the the singing soldiers are, well, they're the Devons that he's looked for. You all right, pal? Where are you from? He's probably got the wind up. Well, he's not one of ours. He's bloody soaked. Okay, let's just pick him up and take him with us. It's all fine, the Devons. What's he saying? What's that, mate? The Devons. 
I have to find the Devons. Where the Devons? You are the Devons? Yes, Cole. Why haven't you gone over? We're the second wave. They don't send us all at once. Yeah, we're D Company. We spend the night digging in. We go last. Are you all right? Mackenzie. Where's Colonel Mackenzie? Oh, he's down at the line. Which way? This way. We're headed up there now. And he realizes that he's in the right place and he's not too late. Not all the men have been sent. And he just barely made it. Like, these, the first wave of the Devons are ready to roll as he's walking through trying to find old Mackenzie. And so he's like, where's Mackenzie? And they're like, dude, back off. We're about ready to go fight some battles. About ready to go in this thing. It's going to be tight. He's like, no, you don't understand. Where's Mackenzie? And well, he can't make it through the trench because all of the Devons are lined up and ready to go fight. And so he's like, whatever, I'm going to climb out of this trench, get into no man's land, and just run in front of the trench and do my very best not to die. And boy, he does his very best not to die. And he doesn't die, but he almost dies because as he's running, a bunch of artillery shells are just exploding all around him. He's being tripped by random soldiers running through, and it's just a he's just having a heck of a time there trying to trying to get this done. But uh it's a really cool scene. Again, one take, and it's insane because there's hundreds and hundreds of extras running through this battlefield. And he I I read somewhere that when he fell down, it wasn't in the script. Like he wasn't supposed to fall down. He just literally collided with an extra. And when you're doing one takes, you can't stop. So he got back up and kept running. And the camera, like you pointed out, uh, Luke, a few weeks ago, was on a railroad track. So the camera was like moving at a set distance. And so he had to keep up with the camera in order for the shot to work. And it just really worked. All of it was just awesome. It was a really cool scene. And he does. That was cool. He does make it to Mackenzie's tent right before Mackenzie orders for the second wave to advance. Smog bunker. Right. And keep in mind, this is this is Benedict Cumbersquatch. And, and, you know, I always thought that his American accent was bad, but his English accent isn't that good either. And he's English. Wait, isn't he English? Yeah. <laughs> so I just, I, I, maybe his American accent is really good. It's just everything that comes out of his stupid little weasel face just doesn't sound believable. He does. He looks He looks straight up like a badger. And, and Scoville's like, hey, bro, will you please read this letter? And he's like, do you think flattery will keep you alive? No, no. No, indeed. You seem familiar with my name, but I don't remember smelling your kind before. Who are you? And where do you come from? May I ask? Where did that come from, Cumberbatch? Well, thief. I smell you. I hear your breath. I feel your air. Where are you? I'm like, you're in the wrong movie, Cumberbatch. You're not a CGI dragon in this one. You're a colonel. Yeah, he's like, I'm not going to read your letter. I don't got time to read. I'm, I'm sending people to die here, all right? And he's like, seriously, you need to read this because it's from General Aaron Moore, you know, the commander of the whole thing. And he's like, 
fine. If I have to read it, I will. And he reads it, and he's like, well, this stinks. Can't send 1,600 men to their deaths today. And he calls off the attack. And Schofield wants to know where Lieutenant Blake is. And they're like, he's with the first wave, bro. He's probably, probably, you know, gone. Why don't you go check the, the, the casualty tent? And if he's not there, he's probably, you know, out festering. So the next guy sent on this mission has someone to put their hand through. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as he goes to the tent and sees all these wounded soldiers, he sees Lieutenant Blake. Now keep in mind, Lieutenant Blake, our Lieutenant Blake, from the beginning, the one that got shish kebobbed, he said, you'll know my brother when you see him. You'll recognize him. He looks like me. And he's a bit older. And then the Lieutenant Blake that we see is just absolutely gorgeous. I think is the only way you can describe him. He's one of the most handsome actors I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Our Lieutenant Blake was like a short, dumpy guy. He looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy in, in a British Army uniform. He's like, he looks like me. No, he doesn't. That's like saying, oh, really? I... I, I, oh, you'll know you'll know my brother Luke. He looks just like like me. And then Hugh Jackman just comes walking on the screen a little bit later. That look like you? What are you talking about? Apparently, he uh, had a high estimation of himself. Uh, but yeah, he he finds this living embodiment of the statue of Adam, and he's like, "Hey, you must be Blake. You look so similar." looks so similar to your brother and older Blake's like oh is my identical twin younger brother here you know because we look so similar and he's like nah bro he got gut stabbed a while back and here's here's his jewelry and his dog tag that's all the exchange they have his brother of course is sad that his, his younger brother got got killed and Schofield asks Blake to to write his mother and 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 tell the Blake's mothers, mother, their brothers, mother that, you know, the first Blake died heroically. And, and the older Blake is like, yeah, you know, we look exactly alike. And then Schofield finds a nice tree and just takes a nap. <laughs> Finally did it. Finally got back to his nap. Now, I will say that one thing, it was like a kind of a shocking moment there because he falls asleep, but first he looks at a picture and in the picture is his wife and two daughters. Now, Blake didn't have a wife. He was looking at a picture of his parents. But at the beginning of the movie, Blake is all excited about being able to go home for leave and seeing his parents and going home for a little bit. And Schofield warns him. He's like, it's better for you to not go back. I hated going home. I hated it. When I knew I couldn't stay when I knew I had to leave, and they might never see me. And it does hit home that you find out that he's a father of two little girls, and man, war is stupid. I'm a father of two little girls. No, you're not. And you, I'm gonna leave it at that. Okay. I'm the father of one son who desperately wants a new father because he keeps trying to report me to see <laughs> Oh, man. But, you know, all in all, I like this movie more than I liked Hacksaw Ridge. And I enjoyed Hacksaw Ooh. Ridge, but I did like this movie. But like all war movies, 
there's some language, so be careful watching it around the younger ones. Next week, we're going to finish out our War Movie Trilogy by going back in time either even further to 1917. So, let's watch the trailer to 2000's The Patriot. I have long feared. Weren't we already doing that? Turn to visit me. And the cost is more than I can bear. I feel like Mel Gibson is just set a prequel to his DUI arrest. And I have no desire to do so again. I have seven children. Man. I wish to leave them fatherless. He's busy. A family threatened by war. And it'd be kind of cool to look out on your French porch and see like a battle. Yeah, until you realize that they're going to come for all your supplies and food afterwards. Brother, you're a man of principle. When you have a family of your own, perhaps you'll understand. When I have a family of my own, I won't hide behind them. Oh, snap, Heath. Hang him, put his body on display. Colonel, I beg you, by the rules of war. Would you like a lesson, sir, in the rules of war? Or perhaps your children will. He plays the best bad guy. If you need a British man, yeah, no, his face, guy. like you just hate his face. Is he a British guy? Yeah. Might I request, sir, that you transfer my son here under my command? I'll fire first to start with the officers. We don't know when or where they're going to strike. Where'd you learn all that riding, shooting? My father talked. How many were there? Maybe one. One man. Sounds more like a ghost than a man. This ghost, bring him to me. How many men does Cornwallis have under his command? 12,000 redcoats. I'm here to enlist every man willing. Who's with us? This is not the conduct of a gentleman. I'll take that as a compliment. If I ever am in a war with a muzzleloader pistol, I will definitely aim it very slowly in a descending manner. I mean, while cocking the lever, the I hammer. Would, I would be afraid to shoot it because I don't want to miss because it takes a lot of work to get ready to shoot again. Muzzleloader rifles are hard enough to <laughs> aim properly. I can't even imagine. Like you gotta be like three feet away from somebody to hit him with a pistol. This movie should just be called. Here's not what happened in the Revolutionary War, but it looks cool, America. That's what it should be called. This, this is movie. America right here. That's right. This is. We need some more movies like this. Just good old bald eagle flying, flag waving America. Make America great again. For Rotten or Righteous, I'm Zach Geiler. The British version of Joseph Smith. Tis I, Joseph Smith. I think that's Joseph Smithingham. Smithingham. It is I, Joseph Schwitzerweenel. The German Joseph. Right. Or before we go. In World War One, there was trench warfare, and neither the Americans nor the Germans could get the upper hand. And they're reaching a stalemate. One day, an American came up with a plan that would win them the war. His private explained his plan to his trench mates. Which, this is not a good thing to call your friends. Hey, you want to be my trench mate? That sounds dirty. No. Uh, uh, trench mates. <laughs> and they figured, why not? It's not like we have any better ideas. And so the next day, an American soldier called out, Hans? And a German popped up and shouted back, Jaw! Boom! The German was shot dead. The next... <laughs> the next day, the American shouted again, Hans? Ja! 
boom, shot dead. And this process continued over the next couple of days. And the Germans were losing large numbers and were now finally catching on. And the Germans had an emergency meeting. They thought they could come back from the heavy losses using the same tactics as the Americans. Thus, a German asked, what's a popular American name? John, replied another German. So the next day, the Germans decided to execute their plan. A German shouted, John? An American called back, is that you, Hans? Ja! (laughs) (laughs) And that's how American won the World War (laughs) One. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody. All right, goodbye. I gotta pee. Dollar coin is a loon. A loon? What a stupid country. What a stupid country, Canada. I mean, there's so much cooler birds. Like, ours is a bald eagle. That thing, if it wanted to, could swoop out of the sky, pick me up, and carry me to its nest and feed me to its young. That is a terrifying (laughs) bird. It would have been the the turkey. It was either... Yeah, Ben Franklin or... Or, uh, I think it was Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson wanted to make the turkey our national bird. You think if the turkey was our national bird that America would be as great as it is or ever achieve like the heights that it did? Like, could you like go into war carrying the banner of the turkey? I mean, can you imagine our war cries? You go over there to (laughs) Afghanistan to bring a little freedom. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, we're going to get you, you terrorist. They would look at us like, no, you're silly. You're silly people. You know, they filmed in the English countryside near the River Styx. Or not River Styx, that's in France. That's in hell, actually. I'm an idiot. Anyways. <laughs> <where they> were... <laughs> uh, no, and they, they saw in... Achilles, and then it turned into the movie Troy. Hey, after World War One, the U.S. was granted several island territories in the Pacific Ocean. Hawaii being one of them. And they ended up liking it so much that they wanted Samoa. <laughs> Boom. Okay.